0: But yeah, well, if you're thinking about boring to invest, you need to consider a lot more than this oversimplified math. Welcome to episode 13 of the Canadian Couch Potato podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bortolotti, it's good to be back with you again. In this episode we're going to talk about a relatively recent innovation in ETF investing and that is the growth of robo-advisors. Now I'm sure you've heard of these firms although you might be fuzzy on the details especially because a number of quite different services have been lumped in under that name. In the broadest sense a robo-advisor is an online service that builds and manages portfolios usually using ETFs and then uses software to automate the process of investing new money and rebalancing the portfolio. You can think of them as a middle ground for investors who don't want or need a full service human advisor to manage their portfolio, but are also uncomfortable making ETF choices and performing the trades themselves. Robo's also fall somewhere in between DIY and full service advisors in terms of costs with the usual robo advice fee coming in at about 0.5%, not including the cost of the ETFs themselves. And that fee drops as portfolios get larger. Now, these services have existed in the US since about 2008, but they didn't appear in Canada until 2014. Uh, the pioneers in this country have been Wealth Simple and Nest Wealth, but there have been several other players in the arena as well, including WealthBar, Modern Advisor, and Just Wealth. And then a number of banks and brokerage firms have also uh, offered services that have been lumped in with this robo advisor label including BMO's Smartfolio, National Bank's Investcube, Questrade's Portfolio IQ, and RBC's brand new initiative, InvestEase. Now, I think it's pretty clear that online portfolio managers are here to stay, but it's equally clear that the robo-advisor landscape is going to evolve pretty dramatically in the coming years. The market just can't possibly support so many firms, and we still don't know how comfortable Canadians are with these online models. Now, there are a lot of smart people looking at these issues, and in October, I attended a conference called The Roles of Robo-Advisors in Personal Financial Planning. It was organized by the DeGroote School of Business, which is part of McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. One of the speakers uh, at that conference was Pauline Shum-Nolan, a professor of finance at the Schulich School of Business at York University. Much of Professor Shum Nolan's recent academic work has focused on ETFs and portfolio management. She's also the co-founder of a firm called PW Portfolio Analytics, which provides services to both DIY investors and advisors. And I should mention here that despite the similar sounding names, PW Portfolio Analytics has no relationship to PWL Capital, the wealth management firm that employs yours truly. At the conference, Professor Shum-Nolan spoke about the business models of robo-advisory firms and the challenges and opportunities they're going to face in the coming years. I spoke with her after her talk about some of these ideas. My guest on the podcast today is Professor Pauline Shum-Nolan of the Schulich Business School. Uh, Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for Um, having me.
0: Thank you. So I wanted to talk to you about the research and the work that you've done in the robo-advisory sector. Um, And I thought it would be worth starting by asking you simply, how did we get here? And what I mean by that is, how has the traditional financial services industry let investors down and opened the door for new technology like Mm robo-advisors?
1: Well, I mean, robo-advisory or digital advisory, you know, the name sounds a bit you know, sort of a bit mysterious and 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 you know, you know, kind of magical in a way. But you know, as I as I look more into the services and the products that they offer, in fact, I find that it is really the traditional, um, you know, model portfolios that you get from a mutual fund company or from you know a bank. Um, but it's just everything's online. And instead sort of mutual fund, traditionally, um, the robo-advisors use ETFs. Um, and so in a way, uh, you know, I was a little bit disappointed. And, you know, when I found out that it is really very traditional products um, that come about with very traditional methodologies, you know, working with the idea of an efficient frontier and recommending... You know, anywhere between five, seven, eight, nine, ten portfolios along those front, uh, the frontier using you know six, seven predetermined funds. Um, so I have to say, it's really sort of old style financial services, but everything's been put onto a platform, and uh, you know, because now there's that capability with technology.
0: So it's interesting that you say that the robo-advisors seem to have adopted, you know, quote-unquote old-school portfolios in the sense that the theory that their portfolio design is based on goes back to, you know, the 50s. Right. But um, that's, that's from a theoretical point of view. But if you have a look at the types of portfolios that most Canadians have today that have been built by traditional financial advisors... I think we would find that a lot of them don't follow even those basic so-called old school ideas, right? In other words, this idea of broad diversification, you know, we don't see. We see all the time portfolios that are 80% Canadian stocks, right? Or that have very little fixed income component or have a very small number of securities rather than broad diversification. So I guess what I'm getting at is, would it at least be worth acknowledging that robo-advisors, while perhaps not building optimal portfolios, if such a thing exists, are at least a huge improvement over what the average Canadian has in their portfolio today?
1: I mean, they're definitely able to diversify in sort of different perspectives, again, with the use of ETFs. Um, You know, that within each ETF, you know, they they are... most of them use passive ETFs that are indexed. So within each ETF, you have hundreds of stocks and sometimes thousands, depending on the ETF. And you are diversifying typically across different providers as well. Whereas in a traditional advisory, uh, you know, within within a, a mutual fund company, um, be it an independent one or within a bank, you're using just the provider, um, that, that one provider. Whereas Robos, you know, they have ETFs that are from different providers, and they're able to diversify more effectively because they're using ETFs and and being able to access traditionally more um, complicated markets. You know, such as bond ETFs, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned uh, in some of your work and in the talk that um, I just listened to you give that you would like to see some of the robo-advisors, for example, do a little bit more customization rather than relying on, you know, a small number of model portfolios. Can you expand a little bit on uh, what sorts of things they could do in order to deliver more customized service to their clients?
1: Mm -hmm. The the fact that, you know, for their their base products, you know, it was based on six seven. ETFs and it's the same set of ETFs that are being provided to all of their investors. And so therefore, if you were to compare my risk risk, you know, model portfolio one to your risk model portfolio two, we have the same funds and maybe you have, you know, four percent more of one fund and I have um, Five percent more of the other fund, less of another, and so they're actually very similar portfolios. And the, in terms of the risk exposures, um, if you really drill down, they're very similar. You know, you have because the typical robo will have you know emerging markets, uh, developed markets, um, some Canadian stocks, um, U.S. stocks, but the majority of them will be um, more more domiciled in North America. And so, if you were to want to get rid of certain exposure, like, for example, let's say I'm still concerned about the energy sector or I'm concerned about the i t sector, well, then it's very difficult to get rid of those exposure to minimize those risk exposures because those are those portfolios are not set up in a way to customize um, you know for for a client for specific risk preferences
0: so this kind of gets at you know the difference between a automated or robo-advice model and a traditional investment advisor. Because um, I guess once you get to the point where you are able to offer custom solutions for every client, then you no longer have the ability to rely on technology to make those decisions. And you have to have some human intervention. And when you have the human intervention, then you blur into a full advice model, and you probably have to charge higher fees because you're dealing more directly with clients. So how do you strike that balance?
1: Right. Well, I think the technology has to go farther. I think there's been a lot of technology uh, put into place by um, the robos in terms of having your questionnaire online, getting approval so that you don't need a phone call with a human advisor, having your portfolio invested and rebalanced, all done on a platform, but technology could actually push them farther in terms of that customization. I mean, I, I, you know, I agree that at the end of the day, you know, if you have very specific preferences, um, you're better off, you know, getting the help, uh, at least having a conversation with a, with a human advisor. But I think technology with the robots haven't been exploited enough that, you know, with machine learning, um, you know, and you could and, and with the availability of data these days technology can go farther in the customization and meet a human being at a farther point than 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 where it is now hmm. you know where the investors come in being a lot more informed or, or more information is being provided um, at a higher level um, but more in depth at the same time by the human advisors so I think where they meet could be different from where it is today
0: it's interesting because a lot of the uh, when you hear some of the robo-advice firms talking about how they're addressing you know, some of the business challenges and some of the resistance, say, to their model, one of the things that they have moved towards is more human contact. So it's not so much mm-hmm. better technology, mm-hmm. more automation, it's more opportunities to talk to a human being. Um, I wonder if you have a sense of whether like which one clients want more? Which one investors want more? Do they want better technology or do they want more of a human touch?
1: Well, based on all the surveys that I've read by you know different consulting firms, I think investors definitely want to have more technology in a way to give them more information, more transparency, more communication, and more assessment. Um, and I and I think we haven't. We're not there yet. Um, and with more inform more information then I think that would make for a more efficient and a um, a better conversation with the advisor because now I think that you know this when you go in, the average person goes in to see an advisor, there's really an asymmetry of information that the average person walking in really has no idea of the, you know, sort of what what is the risk profile? What do these questions really mean? And the portfolio that I get is a bit of a black box that I don't really know what to expect. And I think that... Um, We're not sort of there yet. That technology is there, the data is there, but I don't think that they've been sort of exploited to, or not exploited, but they're not being leveraged to a full extent that they're capable of being used.
0: In a previous podcast, I spoke with... um... Uh, J.D. Power and Associates, who had done a survey on um, online brokerages, which included some examination of the robo-advice industry. And one of the interesting things that they mentioned was that more and more people are saying that as much as they like to embrace the technology, they could use a little bit of hand-holding. And in the um, discussions that uh, we just participated in in the conference. Uh, that theme came up a few times, like one of the value-added services, for example, of an advisor was very often handholding. And what I found interesting as well was that sentiment was coming in many uh, occasions from millennials as well. We have this idea that you know young people are so comfortable with technology and so distrustful of the financial industry, both of which I'm sure are true. Um, but at the same time that's not quite the same thing as saying that they're ready to turn over all of their money to technology. So do you think that maybe the robo-advice industry or the, the firms maybe underestimated a little bit much, or a little bit regarding how much human contact people actually need whether it's setting up accounts or managing their accounts?
1: Yeah, perhaps, you know, if you think about some of the um the entrepreneurs, you know, some of them are very experienced. They come from the wealth management space, but some had to come more from the technology space. Um, so, you know, it is very complicated to explain, you know, finance in general investments to the layperson. And so, traditionally, they hadn't spent that much time on the user interface, except to say, okay, well, here there are their five questions, six questions, we want to ask you, and they're typically the same as a questionnaire that you get you know if you walk into any bank um, and then bang you get your portfolio here the list of funds that you should buy and then you get you know you get a phone call to say hey you know set up the account give us your information and so i've no i've known you know i constantly interact with millennials because as sort of as my day job as a professor and actually surprisingly not a lot of my students and so these are business students not a lot of them actually invest with a robo and i would say the majority don't i've come across two that that do mm. um the majority don't because again there seems to be a bit of a this let down at the end where okay this list you know it's just the whole experience the process ended with a list of okay you should have x percent in in Canadians large cap stocks. You should have X percent in U.S. stocks and X percent in emerging markets, and then that was the end of the process. And you know, was like, okay, well, you know, aren't I supposed to be getting a bit more than that? You know, because by and large, a lot of them can go and invest those themselves. Now, would they be rebalancing? You know, at a different frequency from the robo's? I think that's sort of the minor minor details you know i think they the robos you know would, would sell a lot about the you know sort of reinvestment and and with uh with the rebalancing but yeah those are yeah those are services but you know at the end of the day if i only rebalance once a year um that's not that's not a big deal
0: right like i don't want to pay 50 basis points a year to save me Extra, from rebalancing. Ones. right yeah,
1: yeah. And, and then i have more control i can add some other funds that I that I like, that I've just heard about, you know, into the portfolio.
0: Right. Now, one of the things that uh, I've been trying to follow, you know, with interest is not so much, again, the theory behind robo-advice, but the more practical Uh, concerns, and that is mainly business concerns. There are a number of uh, small firms cropping up in Canada offering these services. I think it's fair to say that five to 10 years from now, they won't all still be around. There will be some consolidation. Mm -hmm. But let's talk a little bit about the challenges of businesses like this, because it seems to me that there is always a tug of war between keeping fees low but also delivering some level of service, right? And, and so it's it's kind of two sides of the same coin. What is good for the client is very low fees, but if fees are too low, then the business can't be profitable, can't possibly offer any individualized service. So can you talk a little bit about that struggle and where you think it might be resolved?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, you know, how, how would they pivot? I mean, you know, you're spot on in terms of that conflict, Um, So, you know, so the trends we're seeing that, you know, you have big firms like BlackRock buying a robo, and you have in Canada, the banks, you know, some banks do their own in-house robo, some banks work with a robo, and you have robo buying another robo, and that kind of consolidation going on and partnerships going on. And I think the earlier messages from the robo was like, we're the disruptor. We are going to, you know, sort of disrupt the whole financial services industry landscape. But I think more and more um, the conversation is, is, you know, is about collaboration and, um, and uh, you know, rather than co- competition. Because Canada, again, is, you know, different from the U.S. In the U.S. you have hundreds of banks, uh, hundreds of financial institutions, but in Canada – we had the big banks and they sort of own the distribution channels. So, you know, the fees and and the the user acquisition costs is just extremely high.
0: Yeah. If you look at the industry in the US, it's interesting to see how it's evolved because some of the uh, robo-advisors that get a lot of press like Betterment and Wealthfront, I think are the two biggest ones of the independent uh, robo-advice only firms. Um, but if you look at... Who's attracting the assets? You know, it's mainly, I think, Vanguard and Schwab would be the two uh, services that have really dominated that business in the US in terms of gathering assets. And it's because they do so many other things that they are able to build enormous scale. And charge very low fees, right? Like you can only charge 10 basis points when you have billions of dollars under app management. And it's so difficult in Canada to attract assets like that. So do you see this as a business model that is eventually going to get co-opted by banks?
1: I mean, the banks have all, you know, publicly said that, you know, in the wealth management space, you know, I've talked to one of the the heads of one of the, the banks uh, here. And then he very frankly said, you know, we have a digital department. We can, I think we can do payment apps. We can do sort of mortgage type apps or borrow apps quite well. Uh, but wealth management, you know, we like to work with. With startups, because um, they, you know, they have the the, the very innovative, you know, they, are they capable of doing very innovative things? Uh, the way they market, the way they can attract millennials, and so on, and so yeah, because I, I think you know, even when Betterment and Wealth started, I mean, it was very clear from day one: you need billions in AUM to be to be sustainable as a business. Mm-hmm. So, and and you know, the Canadian robo is a long way from those numbers.
0: For sure. Now, I mm-hmm. guess the the one thing that works in favor of the robo-advisors in Canada is that the alternatives we have here are not as attractive as they are in the US. So for example, it's very easy for anyone to open a kind of self-directed account at Vanguard in the US and buy their own ETFs. Now, this is not quite robo, so I mean, you're still building your own portfolio, you're still making your own trades, but you're probably paying 10 or 15 basis points for the products. Whereas here, that's much more difficult. Um, Even the ETFs are a little more expensive here. Uh, Brokerage fees are more expensive. So the bar is set lower, but you just don't have the numbers, the population and the dollars, Mm -hmm, I guess, to help build scale here. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I would agree with that.
0: One of the um, potential partnerships that I can see happening in the future is as as robo-advisors evolve is that there would be some kind of partnership with financial planners. And a few of the advisors have robo-advisors have already started what they're calling like white label services. And what that would mean is if you were a financial planner, you would work with your client, you would charge them a flat fee, an hourly fee, however you're compensated for your planning services. But then the investment management would be kind of subcontracted to the robo-advisor, and you might be able to brand it with your company's name or whatever. Do you see that kind of model evolving? It does seem to me in many ways to be the best of, of both worlds.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I think it makes sense for advisors for the smaller accounts, mm-hmm. you know, to um, to spend less time, effort, and costs on those smaller accounts. And even, you know, if there are portfolios that, um, you know, from because these are mostly ETFs and, and passive and, if you want to think of portfolio management in the core satellite perspective, that could easily be a core um, for your investors, and then and then the satellites are the value add from from a human advisor picking specific, customized, um, maybe more concentrated investments for 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 the clients.
0: Now, one of the challenges to that model is um, people's resistance to paying for planning services. And this was interesting in the Q&A section and during the conference, there was one of uh, a bank advisor uh, raised this issue. And she said that, you know, we do all of these really important services for our clients. We do financial planning and estate planning and tax planning and things like this. And we just cannot send our clients an invoice for those services because they'll be, they'll push back. However, some of them are paying two percent or more for asset management, which is an outrageous fee in a in a period where you can get it for you know a fraction of that. So, how much of the evolution of robo advisory services do you think will be driven by the clients' biases <laughs> and the clients' uh, reluctance to pay for certain services, you know, as opposed to other types of services?
1: Right. I mean, it's certainly you know the the fact that we pay some of the highest mutual fund fees. Um, You know, in in Canada, that's really come to the forefront and it's, you know, and obviously the ETF providers um, are are sort of, you know, helping in that effort to bring home that message. But in terms of, you know, the other services that a a financial planner advisor provides, you know, I mean, there's one way to look at it is that they could be reducing cost in providing those services if they leverage technology. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and use some of the platforms um, that a lot of fintech startups are, you know, are, are doing in the mortgage space and the other, you know, I don't know if they're estate planning uh, tech, um, you know, maybe that would be a new area to help reduce the costs so that when they generate a plan, when they are looking at the different analysis for the plans, that they can uh, they can churn out those plans a lot more quickly and then overlay a, a customized plan. Um, Solution, you know, on top of, of a sort of a a more sort of standard plan that that comes out of those platforms. So maybe we know ways to reduce cost is is one way to to help with that.
0: Yeah, maybe I'm getting a little futuristic here, <laughs> but I do see uh, an opportunity. Way down the road, not in the next three to five years, but of some kind of artificial intelligence being involved in financial planning where you have, um, you know, an artificial intelligence that has been exposed to an enormous number of planning scenarios. And is able, like an incredibly experienced financial planner, to be able to recall those scenarios, how they were resolved in the past, and then offer some solutions for existing problems. I have no idea how that might evolve, but it's pretty fascinating. But to that's imagine. happening
1: in law, for example, yeah. with legal tech. You and know, medicine. again, yeah, in medicine and so on. So, it's definitely, um, it's definitely, you know coming?
0: Now one of the uh, other issues that came up uh, a few times in the discussions during the conference was that the Robo advice model has not yet been tested by a major bear market. So um, one of the things that people often will say is that, you know a good advisor will keep you invested during the bad times. I should say that there are many advisors who do not keep their investors. They are just as likely to panic as, as advisors. So I don't think we should take that as a given. Um, but I do think it's uh, reasonable to say that um, if and when we do get a major correction, a 20%, 30% downturn in the equity markets, a lot of people who have been kind of coasting with robo-advisors and enjoying very good returns might start to push back. Their phones are probably going to be ringing more than they have in the past. How do you think that they will weather that test?
1: Well, I think it depends how they prep for it to the extent that it's inevitable, that there will be bad times, that, you know, how they prep their, their users, you know, sort of starting now, if not before, um, that, you know, some sort of a turn is inevitable and the messaging that they provide. So, you know, one thing about any of the fintech platforms is that they have very frequent communications uh by email mm-hmm. with with their with their users and so there's a lot of education that's involved and and they have to get the right messaging there again is not but 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 i you know I, I think that I wouldn't be surprised about the phone calls that they that they're going to get because inevitably there will be people who never read the emails and never read any of the educational content that they may provide.
0: Yeah, we all have a, te- a <laughs> tendency to overestimate our risk tolerance. And unless we right. truly <laughs> experienced a yes. devastating bear market, we really don't know how we're going to react. Right? All right, last question is, I just wanted to ask you, as this space evolves over the next few years, um, some of the robo firms are going to survive, others will fall by the wayside. What do you think will set the winners apart? What is the um, sort of winning formula for the ones that are going to stand out over the next, say, three to five years?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if it's, you know, if they've sort of plateaued in terms of their strategy with millennials. Um, you know, there's only so much advertising that you can do with, with you know, with similar messaging. Um, but I, I think that a, you know, a differentiator... Would be, you know, again, what we're seeing in the U.S. because we are in Canada always seems to be, you know, a few steps behind the developments in the U.S. and and our robo's in Canada seem to have sort of follow a lot of the strategies of the of the U.S. robo's um, is is sort of expanding their their offerings, um, you know, there for a sophisticated investor with you know with with you know a few a few um hundred thousand dollars to invest and in. they're not just going to be happy with five etfs mm-hmm. you know that that they really can do on their own um so you know access to some newer strategies like um we're talking in a conference about you know you uh, partnering with asset managing companies you know it was like this Smart, you say a smart beta products that seems to be a strategy seems to be all the rage right now smart beta or low vol um, strategy and uh, and maybe through the partnership you know expanding the distribution channel so i think i think the distribution channel and their product offerings would be, would really you know help yeah help it's going to be it's
0: definitely going to be an interesting space to watch in the next few years i think it's really it's already changing the landscape and will continue to do so All right, Professor Shum-Nolan, thanks so much for joining us.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, I want to reflect on a few of the ideas that Professor Shum-Nolan and I discussed in the interview and offer my take. Before I do, I should be clear that as an investment advisor, there's an inherent bias in my opinion about robo-advisors as these firms are technically competitors. I don't really see them that way. I've long been an advocate for DIY investors, but I do offer that up in the interest of disclosure. Near the beginning of our interview, Professor Shumnolan mentioned that she feels many robo-advisors offer traditional ETF portfolios that she feels are too simple and too similar to one another. One of the advantages of the the technology, she feels, is that it should allow more customized portfolios rather than cookie-cutter solutions for every client. For what it's worth though, I tend to have the opposite view. I certainly agree that every investor has individual needs to consider. But I'm not sure that an advisor, whether human or robo, can add any real long-term value by building more complex portfolios with more moving parts. In fact, I would love to see robo-advisors simplify their portfolios even further by using only a small number of cap-weighted, total market ETFs. Instead, today, many of their portfolios include sector funds, smart beta ETFs, covered call ETFs, dividend-oriented funds, and even actively managed ETFs. You can certainly understand why they do this. Whenever a firm offers a simple solution, there will always be investors who feel that simple is unsophisticated, and their reactions will be something like, why would I pay you a fee to build such a simple portfolio when I could just do it myself? By contrast, if they include some exotic ETFs, they give the impression that their portfolios are optimized, you know, even if there's no evidence that this actually improves performance, especially when you consider that specialized ETFs are almost always more expensive than plain vanilla counterparts. So my advice here is, if you're attracted to the couch potato strategy and you're looking to use a robo-advisor, look for a firm that keeps its portfolios as simple as possible. The value of a robo-advisor, in my view, comes from the consistency and the discipline that it imposes. They will build a diversified portfolio for you and they'll look after all the maintenance so you can focus on what's really important, which is your regular savings. That's a huge benefit for DIY investors who may be overwhelmed by the whole process, as well as those who might have difficulty rebalancing their portfolios when markets are in turmoil. I just don't think that they can improve their service by adding narrowly focused or actively managed ETFs. That just adds complexity and cost. Now, another issue we touched on in the interview was the evolving business model of robo-advisors. This is a pretty tough space to be in because the margins are tiny, and the firm really needs huge scale before it's profitable. One of the problems I'm sure robo-advisors are experiencing is that many of their clients have small portfolios. You can do the math here, if you charge 0.5%, you collect just $50 a year on a $10,000 account, which means you almost certainly lose money because your overhead is going to be much more than that. These firms are gonna need hundreds of millions in assets under management to be sustainable, and that's going to be a challenge in Canada. So over the next several years, we're almost surely gonna see some of these smaller firms disappear, while others will probably be consolidated or bought out by banks and other large financial institutions. We're already seeing a little bit of that. Wealthsimple, for example, has raised $100 million in capital from Power Financial, the giant firm that owns Investors Group and McKenzie Investments, among many others. And National Bank has acquired a $6 million stake in Nest Wealth. Now, as everyone in Canada knows, the big six banks dominate the financial marketplace. BMO, RBC, National Bank have already made some inroads into the robo-advice business and eventually the others are going to decide on a strategy and make a move. That's going to make it harder for the small independent firms to build any kind of scale. Now, finally, I think that there is another major challenge for robo-advisors and that is going to be finding a cost-effective way to add some level of human contact. It's becoming clear that even investors who are attracted to online portfolio management still want or need some personalized advice, even if they don't want to work with a full-service advisor. As Professor Shum Nolan suggested, many of the key people behind the robo-advisor startups have a tech background rather than a financial services background, and I think they may have misjudged this need. And honestly, I think I did too. Like many people, I expected that millennials especially were so comfortable with technology and so distrustful of advisors that they would want their investments to be managed entirely online with minimal human interaction. But that seems not to be true. And now some robo-advisor services are trying to add some support from financial planners and human investment advisors. Now that's great, but it is going to be very difficult for them to provide attentive service to small clients who are paying very low fees. And that's why I think we may see more partnerships between robo-advisors and independent fee-only planners. It seems to me that they provide complementary services because fee-only planners can offer advice about budgeting and saving strategies, RSPs versus TFSAs, risk management and so on, but they normally aren't licensed to provide investment advice. So if they can charge their clients directly for planning and then delegate the investment decisions to a robo-advisor, that might be a model that works for everyone. And indeed, we're already seeing some robo-advisors offering so-called white-label versions of their platforms so they can be used and branded by independent planners. As Rob Carrick recently wrote in The Globe, quote, it's time to stop treating robo-advisors as a novelty and start considering them as a smart option for people seeking help in building an investment portfolio. I agree with that. I think the technology is outstanding and it's already helping more people get out of overpriced, badly designed mutual fund portfolios and into low-cost and broadly diversified ETFs. I don't know how all of this is going to play out, but it will definitely be an interesting space to watch. (laughs) And it is time once again for our Ask the Spud segment where we answer investing questions from listeners. And joining me as always in the studio is my colleague Amanda Diel. So Amanda, what is the question this time around?
1: Okay, so today's question comes from Nick who writes, What is your opinion on borrowing money from the
0: bank, perhaps against your home equity, and investing it in index funds? If the interest on the loan is less than the expected return on the investments, wouldn't it be advantageous? Thanks for the question, Nick. This is one that many people are asking these days, especially with interest rates so low and recent equity returns so high. Here's the basic idea. If you can afford to save $300 a month, let's say, why not take out a loan or a line of credit? If you borrowed $100,000 at 3.5% interest, the loan would require monthly interest payments of about $300, so your cash flow would be about the same as if you just saved that amount. But now you can get the full $100,000 compounding right away rather than building your savings gradually. Then at some point in the future, you pay back the principal on the loan and you keep the difference. As Nick says, as long as the return on the investments exceeds the interest you pay on the loan, you should come out ahead. And over the last five years, a portfolio of equity index ETFs delivered double-digit returns. So anyone who borrowed to invest over that period is feeling pretty flush right now. To make the math even more compelling, if you borrow money to invest in a non-registered account, the interest is tax deductible. So, if you're in a 40% tax bracket, that 3.5% interest rate effectively costs you just 2.1%. Now, at this point, it almost seems too good to be true. Indeed, I found a calculator on a website uh, run by Raymond James, the large wealth management firm, that made leveraged investment look almost absurdly compelling. I ran a comparison on the calculator using these numbers above, borrowing $100,000 at 3.5% for 10 years, compared with starting at zero and saving every month. Now, assuming you were in a 40% tax bracket and you earned an annual return of 7%, the calculator reveals that after paying back the loan 10 years later, your portfolio would be worth over $72,000, compared with just $43,000 with the monthly savings option. That is 40% more. Now, I went on to play with the calculator and tried to come up with a scenario where the monthly savings option came out ahead, but honestly, it was pretty difficult to do. Even if you were in a 20% tax bracket and your investment return was equal to the interest rate on the loan, the leveraged options still squeaked ahead after 10 years. I mean, this was starting to look like pretty magical stuff. I was almost tempted to sign up myself. But yeah, well, if you're thinking about boring to invest, you need to consider a lot more than this oversimplified math. The problems with leverage, in my view, stem from the conflicts of interest in the financial industry and, most importantly, from the additional risks inherent in borrowing to invest. So let's start with the conflicts of interest. You may have noticed that leveraged investing is usually promoted by financial institutions that lend money. For them, it's a great deal. especially if the line of credit is secured with your home equity. The chances of you defaulting on the loan are low, and even if you do, they have a claim on your house. So of course they're going to encourage you to borrow more money because that's their business. You may have noticed as well that leveraged investing tends to be recommended by advisors whose fees are based on a percentage of assets they manage. So if I'm an advisor who charges one and a half percent on your investments, clearly it is in my best interest to encourage you to take out a $100,000 home equity line of credit and invest it with me. If you use it to pay off your mortgage, I don't make any money, but if you invest it with me, my fee goes up $1,500 a year. So I might be inclined even to put a calculator on my website that makes leveraged investing look like it's a no-brainer. As you can imagine, the biggest conflict of interest comes when your lender and your investment manager are the same financial institution. Well, now you're paying them interest on the money you borrow and management fees on the funds you buy with that money. In my opinion, financial institutions should not even be allowed to promote this kind of double-dipping strategy, but they can and they do, so it's up to investors to be savvy enough to recognize what's going on here. Now, okay, you say, but what if I'm able to borrow money at a favorable rate the interest is tax deductible and I invest the money in low-cost index ETFs myself so the fees are negligible. Wouldn't it be a good idea in that case? Well in theory it might be. I mean certainly if you had borrowed five years ago and invested in a globally diversified portfolio of equity ETFs you would have done extremely well. Stocks delivered an annualized return of 14% over that period, but we know that the last five years have been exceptionally good for equities, not to mention unusually low for interest rates. Over most periods, unfortunately, the stars are not going to align like that. Let's consider that over the 20 years ending October 31st, 2017, An investor with equal amounts in Canadian, U.S. and international equity indexes would have enjoyed a return of about 6.5% annualized before fees and taxes. So if you had borrowed money and paid an average interest rate of, say, 3%, you held on with discipline, rebalancing once a year, you would have earned much more than an investor who simply saved every month during that period. And it wouldn't have been all that hard to stay invested with discipline during the last five years. I mean, since 2012, just about everything has come up roses. The worst one month return for a global equity portfolio was just minus 5.8%. And there was never more than two months in a row with a negative return. But try to imagine how you would have felt had you borrowed $100,000 to invest in the early 2000s, just before the tech bubble burst. Or in 2007, before the housing crash in the US that ushered in the worst financial crisis of our lifetime. Or 2011, during the European debt debacle. Or even early 2015, when falling oil prices led to a slide in Canadian equities that lasted a whole year. Would you have been able to hang on with discipline as your portfolio mounted losses of 20%, 30% or even more? Let's remember, investing in equities is risky and stressful enough when you're doing it with your own money, but you're ramping up that risk exponentially when you use leverage. You know, the patient saver who started putting $300 a month into her TFSA before a bear market isn't going to be happy, but at least she can take some solace in knowing that her future contributions are going to buy stocks at lower prices and that should pay off over the long term. But the poor guy who borrowed $100,000 is in a far more difficult place because he can watch his portfolio fall to $70,000 or $80,000 while he still owes $100,000 to the bank. So if he decides he's made a mistake, he's going to need to sell all his stocks and come up with twenty dollars or $30,000 of his own money to pay back the loan. Now, as you can imagine, that is a very stressful predicament to be in, and it's enough to scare a person out of the market for a very long time, maybe even forever. That really is my problem with these online calculators that suggest that leverage is a simple way to juice your investment returns. The calculators assume that your investment returns are reliable and consistent every year, but of course we know equity returns are neither. Okay, you say, I can ride out a few difficult months, I'm in it for the long term. Well, great, but equity returns can actually be negative over periods of several years, not just a couple of months. Losses over three to five years are not that uncommon. It's even possible to lose money with a diversified portfolio of equity ETFs over 10 years. This, in fact, would have happened between mid-2000 and mid-2010, for example. Had you been investing with borrowed money during that period, I suspect you would have spent a lot of time clutching your stomach and throwing up in the toilet. So as you've probably figured out, Nick, I don't recommend leveraged investing for the vast majority of people in the vast majority of cases. Now, does that mean it's never a good idea? Well, not necessarily. There's a few cases where I think it could make sense. So for starters, I would say leverage might be appropriate if you're a veteran investor who has successfully kept your cool during past bear markets. If you understand that markets can fall very sharply, you know that when they do, the news reports are going to be predicting Armageddon. And yet you've got a proven track record that you can maintain discipline during those times. I think it's also more compelling if you can borrow at a very competitive rate and you're in a very high tax bracket. So if you can borrow, say, for an effective interest rate of, say, 2%, then you've limited your risks significantly. But even then, if you borrow a lump sum to invest, I suggest paying off part of the principal with each monthly payment. Many of the illustrations of the advantages of using leverage, including the online calculator that I mentioned, assume that you make only interest payments with the intention of paying back the whole principal at some future date. But I would suggest that you reduce your risk by making blended payments of principal and interest, the way you do with a mortgage. That way you reduce your risk that the portfolio will ever be worth less than the principal of the loan. Finally, I think you can make a strong case for taking a small short-term loan to make an RRSP contribution if you're in a high tax bracket. So let's say, for example, you have $20,000 in unused RSP room and you're in a 40% tax bracket with a reliable income. Then the RSP deadline rolls around in February, you don't have any cash available. So you borrow from a line of credit and you contribute the full $20,000 to your RSP. When you file your taxes a couple of months later, you'll get an $8,000 tax refund. So you immediately put that against the line of credit, and then you can pay off the remaining $12,000 over, let's say, a year at uh, $1,000 a month. Now in this scenario the risk is relatively low because you're borrowing a modest sum of money for a short time and that 40% tax refund is guaranteed, unlike the return on a portfolio of equities. Now it still takes discipline, it's still risky, you might be tempted to spend the tax refund or you might lose your job and have trouble making the monthly payments, but this kind of RSP catch-up loan can make sense for some people. But other than that, Nick, I don't recommend borrowing a lump sum to invest, especially if you're a new investor. It's better to just start small with regular monthly savings. It's going to take time for you to understand how well you handle risk, especially if you've never been through an ugly bear market before. So just be patient. Your investment portfolio will grow over time without the help of the loan officer at your bank.
1: Thank you, Dan. Remember, if you've got an investing question that you'd like answered on the podcast, please send it to mail
0: at canadiancouchpotato.com and if it has broad appeal, it may be featured on a future installment of Ask the Spud. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Canadian Couch Potato podcast. Many thanks to all the listeners who posted reviews and ratings on iTunes. I really appreciate the encouragement and your comments do help spread the word to others. Thanks, as always, to the folks behind the scenes, our producer Nick Jaworski, as well as Tara Hunt, Nicole Pomeroy, Amanda Diel, and all my colleagues at PWL Capital. Take care until next time.